Amen. Thank you, John. Excited to be here with you today, as always, in the Lord's Day, and be able to open up God's Word and be able to sit under the authority of that Word. And uh, today, many of you know as Halloween, but it is also, in the Protestant circles, Reformation Day. And what Reformation Day means, or what it typically means traditionally, is that October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther went to the castle church door at Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the church there. And it, it was a, a place for discussion. It wasn't necessarily something that was, he was doing to create controversy. He wanted to create a discussion. He wanted to have an actual discussion about the state of the church, the state of the church being corrupt, the Catholic church drifting from the Word of God into how actually men are justified. I mean, that's the crux of what, what Christianity is trying to get at. How are we imperfect creatures justified before a holy, perfect God? And what Martin Luther discovered in the Scriptures, and since then we celebrate, is that, or rediscovered in the Scriptures, I, I should say, is that we are justified by faith alone, out of grace alone, in Christ alone, and that is to the glory of God alone. And of course, we, we see that in our scriptures as well. Martin Luther didn't realize he was striking the match that would lead to the Protestant Reformation, but it continued on with men like Calvin and Zwingli and Beza, and they carried forth then by the Puritans in America. And in short, we are here today because of them. We stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before us. We would not be worshiping here right now were it not for the Protestant Reformation. Were it not be for those men and women who brought the church back to the truth. And church, there's another saying in Latin, it's semper reformanda, which is always reforming. And the church continues to reform, and we need to continue to stand on this. And if there is, has ever been a time where we need to stand on the word of God and declare, yes, semper reformanda, we need to today. Do we not? And so we forget sometimes we go to church and we do our thing, but we're Protestants, but the root of the word of Protestants is protest. We are protesting what the corruption of the church had become, and we are protesting for justification through faith in Christ alone based on the word of God alone. And so we continue that today, do we not? Amen. We do. Let us pray that as we turn to God's word, we can renew ourselves in that spirit. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for what this day means, Lord. We thank you for the brave men and women and even those like Martin Luther who by all accounts didn't even realize he was starting something that would transform the world. But Lord, let us continue in that. We have such a gift. We have the word of God in our own language, which tells us that we are saved not by works, not by indulgences, not by the church, not by any other rite or ceremony, but we are saved through grace alone, by faith alone in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Help us, Lord, as we see your very words today to understand that, to grow in that. May you be glorified in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. All of that being said, why? 
Why did the reformers do that? Many of them lost their lives. Many of them were martyred for their faith. Why would they do that? Go against the all-powerful Catholic Church in that in reform and say, no, it's corrupt. This is, this is the truth. Why would they do that? Because they thought it was worth it. Because they valued it. Because they understood what they had. They understood the truth and they valued it as truth. They valued the kingdom of God above the kingdom of man, and they would give anything to protect it and to obtain it. And Jesus is going to tell us all about that today. Over these last three weeks, of course, we've been studying the parables of Jesus. We've said that parables are really extended metaphors. They are comparisons of something that is known with something that is maybe less known, and the idea is to communicate spiritual truth. In the center of the parables that Jesus has been teaching has been the gospel, specifically the gospel of the kingdom or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's worth mentioning that God's kingdom is over any and all kingdoms, even right now. Any nation, any king, any leader, any president, any movement, Jesus is right now king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus is the only way to the kingdom because he's the only one who did the work to reconcile outside of those of the kingdom to become in the kingdom. And some reject that news of kingdom as nonsense, and of course some still do today. One day they will receive what they've asked for all along, which unfortunately is separation from God. Some will receive, who receive the news as truth, will of course receive their heavenly reward that we just talked about. And it's a little-known fact or maybe a little-acknowledged fact that not everyone is automatically a child of the kingdom of God, right? We come into this world, John 1, 12 tells us that it's all who did receive them who believed in his name. He gave them the right to become the children of God. It is only those who believe in Jesus, in the name of Jesus, and again, all because of Jesus, the king of the kingdom. Josh did well last week and reminded us that Jesus is a merciful and just king. Thank you for last week, by the way. I had an absolute blast downstairs with the kiddos. We had fun. We played Connect Four. They answered me lot. They asked me lots of very hard questions, like why did God decide to be God? And, and what is what is heaven like? And uh, the usual ones that you would expect, right? Is my dog going to be in heaven? So on and so forth. But it was it was fun. We played some games, made some bracelets. I uh, dominated in Connect Four. It was good. <laughs> this week, Matthew wraps up his parables. And as, as John read for us, look at verse 44 again. He starts with two very quick parables. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. And Jesus first tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Is treasure hidden in a field? And you might be asking yourselves, why is treasure hidden in a field? Why is it not in the bank? Well, the real reason is they didn't have banks. They had bankers, which were kind of money changers, but they didn't have a bank. And so if you had treasure and you didn't want somebody to find it, you hid it. And you hid it in a field. And I guess if you were alive long enough and if you died, then, oh well, your treasure is still hidden in the field. And some guy comes along and finds it. 
And he makes a beeline, he covers it back up, maybe moves it to a different place just in case someone else was watching. And then he makes a beeline to the local Century 21 and he says, yeah, how much for that dumpy field over there? And he makes them a sweet deal and he buys the field and thus gets the treasure as well. Note that our text says, he joyfully sold all that he had because he knew what he was getting. The next parable is exactly like it, except it starts with a merchant in search of fine pearls, and he finds a pearl of great value or great price. Pearls, much like today, are rare and very expensive. They didn't have fake pearls in the first century. They had real pearls. And like the first man, this man recognizes how valuable that is, and he goes and he sells all that he has in order to get that pearl. And we can easily see the common threads between these quick parables that communicate the same truth, that each man recognized the value of what they found, and they were willing to pay any price in order to get that. Why? Because they considered what they were getting of infinitely more worth than whatever they had. Man's like, so what? I got to sell my house and my car and all my toys and everything else to get the field, but what's in the field? A treasure of infinite more value. Jesus, again, is not talking about actual buried treasure or actual pearls. He says point blank that he is talking about the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. And so I'll borrow my first point from my friend D.A. Carson. He says the kingdom of God is worth far more than the cost of discipleship. The kingdom of God is worth far more than the cost of discipleship. And so here's a basic life principle. People are willing to sacrifice whatever for what they think is worth it. Whatever they think is important, whatever they think is valuable. We make time for all the activities we value. We carve out time to go hunting in the fall. We watch football for nine hours in a row. We go away. We relax. We spend all kinds of money in pursuit of hobbies or leisure. We exhaust ourselves in pursuit of career advancement or status. We're starting a new business. We sacrifice friendships for that new boyfriend or girlfriend that we think is the one. I don't mean to say that any of those things are unnecessary or evil, right? We need to ask ourselves that question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? All the sacrifices we might be making to do what we value, the impact on our families, the impact on our careers, the impact on our spiritual selves, all of that question... Is it worth it? Closer to the point, how much value are we placing on the kingdom of God versus all of those other things? Do we consider the kingdom of God worth exceedingly more than anything that we have in our lives? Like the men who went and sold everything in order to get it. Why is it that we can sit in a tree stand or on a fishing boat or a golf course for hours, but the thought of reading our Bibles for more than 15 minutes is not something we want to do. Why is it that we can binge watch the latest next Netflix series or mindlessly scroll through Instagram for a night, but yet the idea of reading a solid book is not something that comes into our minds? Why is it that when we organize our calendar and our priorities, we give time to everything else, but yet do we even consider what we're doing to mature as a disciple of Jesus Christ? I understand this is convicting. Again, part of the joy of my job is I just pass on the conviction that I get around Tuesday, right? And now I save it up for you guys and I pass it on Sunday morning. 
So I don't want you guys to think for a second just because I'm up here and I'm saying those things that I don't struggle with those same things. I do. Life is a a constant assessment of values and priorities. And as Christians, church, we're reminded today that the kingdom of God must be our highest priority because it's worth it. That's why. It's because we know that discipleship takes effort. It costs us something. My good friend Ryan Boyce said, following Jesus doesn't cost you anything except everything. We invest in relationships and houses and careers and retirement funds, but how much do we invest in discipleship? How much do we invest in the kingdom of God? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and someone who rose against the Nazis, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, which would be a good use of your time to read. He says this, Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. But it is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Praise God that we have the Holy Spirit to convict, to encourage, to instruct, to remind us. Conviction isn't always fun, but it's necessary for growth. And again, here's why, church, it's worth it. If we don't consider the kingdom of God worth it, we're not going to sacrifice for it. Philippians 3, Paul got it, 7 and 8. I put it in your bulletins. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, watch this, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Can we call the things in our lives that take up the majority of our time rubbish with regard to the surpassing value of Christ? That's what we're called to, church. But also, church, be encouraged. The kingdom of God is worth far more than the cost of discipleship. It is impossible for us to put more into the kingdom of God than we will get back from the kingdom of God. It's impossible because it is infinitely worth. And for one thing, eternity is at stake. Look at verse 47. Third little parable. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, and sorted out the good containers, or sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The third of our four parables this morning, the kingdom of heaven is like a a fishing net, not like a tiny kid's fishing net on a pole, like a big giant fishing net that you drag behind a boat. And when you drag something through the ocean, usually at the bottom of the ocean, what do you get? Anything that's there. Rocks, sticks, boots, tires, whatever, fish of all kinds and sorts. There are supposedly around 20 varieties of fish in the Sea of Galilee. Some you could eat, some you couldn't eat. So they're sitting on the shore and they're sorting out. Oh, that's a boot, that's a tire, that's a fish, that's a bad fish. Ooh, I like that, that's too small a fish, right? That's what they're doing. Jesus brings it home very quickly and says that this is like the end of the age when he says the angels who will do his bidding, right? At the end of the age, referring to the doctrine of final judgment, The end of the age when Jesus returns to judge every single person that ever lived, it will be like that. 
The angels will sort out the righteous from the evil. And the evil will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you're thinking of last week when Josh preached about the parable of the weeds, you would be right. In that parable, the weeds grow right along with the grain until the end of the age when they will be gathered and thrown into the fiery furnace again. And it says the same thing, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The idea of gnashing of teeth is someone just in pain and anguish. And don't miss that Jesus is repeating himself here. There's two parables that say that the kingdom of God is now worth infinitely more than what we could ever pay for it. And now there's two parables that say eternity is coming. And there's a hell and there's a heaven. And then Jesus turns to his disciples to make sure they're understanding all these things. And he says to them in verse 51, have you understood all of these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Jesus is like, hey, guys, are you getting this? Are you understanding this? I've been talking in parables. You asked me why I'm speaking in parables. This is why. Do you understand? And then he uses even another parable to drive that point home. He says, what I'm, what I'm doing right now is like the master of a house. Have you ever been to somebody's house who maybe was a little well off or, or maybe had a distinguished career or something with awards or artifacts or something, and then he keeps bringing you different things, different treasures, maybe from his youth or from his career or, or from artifacts or something like that that is interesting. And Jesus says, it's like that. What I'm doing right now is I'm going into my storeroom, my trophy room, my whatever, my man cave, and I am bringing out all of these things. And some are new and some are old. And what that refers to is, of course, Jesus is teaching the new covenant. Jesus is saying, I'm here. Everything changes. I'm the Messiah. That's what's new. But he's also tying that in with what's old, right? Because the new covenant is based on the old. But three quarters of our Bible is the Old Testament. We're based on the old covenant. But Jesus has fulfilled it in the new covenant. And Jesus applies this to every scribe, which is super weird in the Greek. And lots of theologians have scratched their heads for a long time as to why he goes into the scribes. It literally says in the Greek, every scribe that has been made a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, which is kind of confusing. But I think it it says two things. I think he used the word scribe specifically to throw back again to the old covenant and say, you guys now are the new scribes. You guys now are the ones who are going to take what I am telling you and write it down as something new, and you're going to tie it into something that's old, and it's going to be of infinite value and worth. And we know, of course, that the disciples went on, the eyewitnesses went on to write their accounts of the gospel. We're reading Matthew's right now. Matthew became a scribe, and he wrote these things down. It may also be that the disciples are now the ones. Jesus is passing on the torch and saying, now you are the ones who are going to go into your storeroom and you are going to bring out treasures of infinite value of new and old and you are going to share them with the world and you're going to explain to them the gospel and you're going to tell them what it's worth. It may also be that the disciples then understood that in light of eternity. They understood that this is not just a clever story that Jesus just said eternity is at stake. So that's my second point. The kingdom is for those who understand that eternity is 
at stake. Jesus is probably about a year away from the cross at this point. And we can sense he's bringing his instruction now to a finer point. He says, are you guys getting this? It's like one of those pull-up moments. Like, guys, really, seriously, this is important. Are you tracking with this? Do you understand this? Because things are about to get intensified in the next couple months. There will be those who reject the message. They will continue on their way to an eternal hell that is unimaginable torment. And church, the doctrine of hell as an eternal punishment is real and it's terrifying. And I would not be doing my job if I didn't teach on the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of eternal judgment. We've got to understand this passage correctly. Jesus is not saying that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That is the biggest misunderstanding in Christianity or any organized religion. That you say, well, I just hope that when I get to heaven or whomever I'm before, that this person will then have the giant scale out and they will say, well, let's look at all your bad deeds and let's look at all your good deeds and let's see where the scale falls. And you're just hoping that there are more good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds. And if there's more good than bad, then Bingo, you get into heaven. There's no scale. There's no scale. You're not going to be judged for your good deeds versus your bad deeds. Good people don't go to heaven. Bad people don't go to hell because everyone's bad. Everyone's evil. Scripture tells us time and time again that we are all sinful We have all strayed from our creator. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one that is righteous, no one. We all enter this world separated from God and sinful and on the wrong side of eternity. And it is a miracle that Jesus Christ would come, sacrifice himself, and save even a single person. Good people don't go to heaven because there are no good people. People who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ, go to heaven. That's what he's saying. Hell is for people who continue to reject the message of Jesus. They continue to refuse to believe it. They refuse to watch this, see it as the infinite value that it actually is. They discard it as rubbish and nonsense have to remember, church, that the gospel is not a suggestion. It's a command. Jesus says, obey it. Second Thessalonians, if you want to have a, a contest again for one of the scariest verses in the Bible, Second Thessalonians 1, I think, would be one of the top contenders every time. Second Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 5, says that this is the evidence of righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered, watch this, worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, talking about the persecuted church, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, watch this, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified with his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony was to you who believed. This should terrify us. Again, Bonhoeffer writes, discipleship is not an offer that man makes to Christ. Did you guys catch that? It's so profound in the way that he says it. Discipleship is not an offer that we make to God. It's a command that God gives to us. It says, obey the gospel. Acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Realize what I've done for you. Realize the infinite value and worth of what I've done for you. Realize that eternity is at stake. John MacArthur powerfully and eloquently says this about this passage. The dragnet of God's judgment moves silently through the seas of mankind and draws all men to the shores of eternity for final separation to their ultimate destiny. Believers to eternal life and unbelievers to eternal damnation. And so I ask you the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Do you understand these things? Do you understand this is what is at stake here? Eternity is at stake. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting torment. The difference is our understanding of Jesus, our understanding of the gospel. Do we submit to Jesus as he is claiming himself to be here, the Messiah, God in the flesh, worthy of all praise and honor and obedience and glory or not? Is he truly for us the King of kings and Lord of lords? Is he truly the ruler of God's kingdom? Again, church, we live in a blasphemous culture. I often think when I'm interacting with someone who just makes a mockery of the gospel and makes a mockery of the things of Christ and a mockery of what he has done, scoffing at it and saying it's ridiculous, I think, and I, and I shudder, and I think they are just adding to the punishment for rejecting Jesus. We've got to realize that. We've got to live as legitimate disciples who understand this, who evangelize faithfully the truth of the message of Jesus that must be believed. But the sad reality is that some will reject Jesus, and some will continue to reject Jesus, and only he knows who those will be. Ours is to be faithful. And proclaim the gospel just like hopefully I am today. Only Jesus knows who are his. But the funny thing is, even for people in the first century, they were staring Jesus himself in the face and they said, nah, not him. Look at verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were all astonished. And they said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his Mary called, mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. But he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus heads back to his hometown in Nazareth, and yes, it's map time, right? 
So we have a map that shows, here, here you go, there's Nazareth, right? There's where we've been at in Capernaum in the Sea of Galilee. Here, I'll give you guys some love over here too. We have Nazareth, we have uh, Capernaum over here. This, as you can see, is about that far away. No, it is about 13 miles away. And here's a picture of what uh, Nazareth looks like today. Not very exciting. Uh, there was actually a replica of the village in Nazareth that Melanie and I went to, which was really cool, which was actually doubly cool because it was set down in this valley, so I couldn't get a picture of the entire village because it was pretty big. But it was set in, in that valley, and you're overlooking actual Nazareth today. And Nazareth is an Arab city, mostly Muslim right now. But Nazareth in the first century was a, a backwoods kind of town. We remember that Nathaniel, upon hearing his brother Philip, said he had found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and he, fa he famously said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> Nothing. No, he's not the guy. You got to find somebody else. Jesus rolls back into his hometown, and he heads right for the synagogue, and he starts teaching there, and it doesn't go well. The people aren't very receptive. They're like, hold on here. Whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't, that's Jesus. Isn't he the carpenter's son? Like, no good comes from a carpenter's son. Sorry, David. No good can come from that. His brothers are right here. His mom is right there. What is this nonsense he's saying about being the Messiah? We have to assume that Jesus is preaching the same things that he's been preaching all along. He's preaching that I am the Messiah, and here is the way to the kingdom. Talking about parables, he continues to teach in parables about the kingdom of God and how to get into the kingdom of God. And he's saying crazy things like he fulfilled the law, and he's God in the flesh. And his people are having none of it. They're like, you're not the Messiah, you used to be my neighbor. What are you talking about? You're crazy. Our text tells us that they took offense at him. Recall that Jesus said in uh, Matthew eleven six 6, that blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And Jesus says, guess what? A prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown, except in his house. Maybe that's, maybe you felt that way. Maybe you have kind of a sibling rivalry thing where it's like, you know, your brother that you've kind of grown up with or your sister that you've kind of grown up with is now some big, important muckety-muck somewhere, right? And, but when they come home, they're just still your brother or sister. It doesn't really matter very much. That's what, the, what these people are saying. They, they, they can't see past who Jesus was as a kid to see who he is now. They have no concept of, watch this, the value of who Jesus is. They just think he's Jesus, the little kid that used to be here. And something very interesting happens or actually doesn't happen. Our text tells us he doesn't do any miracles there. And it's because of their unbelief. Now, full disclosure, Mark's account has a slightly different wording. Let's look at that really quick. In Mark 6, remember, we have the synoptic gospels. We have different colors of the same thing. We have different flavors, right? It's not that those things contradict one another, okay? Look at uh, Mark chapter 6. He says, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters right over there here with us? And they took offense at him. 
And Jesus says again, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Watch this. And he could not do mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Another favorite punching bag church of a progressive Christianity or atheistic or agnostic worldview is right here. They'll find this passage and they'll say, oh, Jesus couldn't do any work, so he must have been limited by something. He, he, he must not be God then. And plus, Matthew says that he didn't do any work, and then Mark says that he couldn't do any work. So which is it, Christian? See, your Bible's full of mistakes. It's not full of mistakes. It's really not. It's, it's focusing on what? It's focusing on the unbelief of the people, not the capabilities of Jesus. And besides, Mark said that he actually did heal some people. Not that he couldn't do anything. He chose not to. Why? Because of their unbelief. One commentator writes, refusal to trust him deprives people of the blessings of his presence and of his favor. It's not an inability of Jesus to work, but it's a failure of us to trust him. And I'll say it this way. God limits his activity in the face of unbelief. God limits his activity in the face of unbelief. Now, I, I cut this out as a separate point because it's important to understand this correctly because false teachers are all over this. There's a whole industry of false teaching that wants you to understand or think that if you believe hard enough, if you have enough faith, then you can move the hand of the Almighty God to do whatever it is you want him to do. It's toxic nonsense, like God isn't healing you because you don't have enough faith. Or that God would bless you with that promotion or that spouse, or he would bless you financially if you had enough faith. Or even worse, you have the power to create your own reality. Just speak it into existence, into being. And if you believe it hard enough, it will happen. It's all garbage. We have to know that. I remember once someone coming to my house last year when I was in the midst of cancer and that person we got on, a, she was bringing me a meal and we, it wasn't from, it wasn't any of us, don't worry. She's bringing me a meal and we got on the subject of COVID and she says, well, I'm not going to get COVID because I believe. And I stood on my front porch and I'm like, what, uh, what does that say about me? <laughs> I mean, I kind of do this for a living, so I thought I believed hard enough, so I, you would think I would get the cancer pass card. I guess I don't have enough faith. It's all garbage, and there are churches in our town and a few miles down Route 94 that will tell you the same thing. There's a whole former basketball stadium in Houston, Texas, where people gather to see a guy with terrible hair to preach that almost every Sunday. <laughs> if you believe hard enough, it can be yours. You just got to have faith. You just got to believe. You just got to do it. It's nonsense. It's false teaching. And we see it here in this passage. It's not about the faith of the people. It is about the sovereign plan of God. That's what it's about. And he is not going to throw his pearls before swine. He is not going to continue to work 
in, in the absence of unbelief. Jesus is mocked there. Is he really going to go on and do miracles right there? Of course not. They don't recognize him for as he is. They don't value him. They don't understand it. One church father wrote this, power has no effect where unbelief doesn't deserve it. Why would he work where he's not appreciated, where he's not valued? So let's, let's, let's pull this into a nice convicting thread for ourselves, shall we? <laughs> Ever wonder why you're not growing? Ever wonder why you don't see more fruits of the Spirit in your life? More love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness. Ever wonder why you don't see more visible aspects of God working in your life? Ever wonder why God feels so distant? How much do we value the kingdom of God? How much are we act- is it actually translating to real belief in our hearts? This may be a good place to land the plane this morning of all, because guess what? All of these parables are about one thing. They're about value. They're about the value of the kingdom of God. The value of treasure, of pearls, of eternity, and of Jesus himself as God in the flesh, the Messiah, Savior, and Lord. Maybe I'll put the big idea this way. The kingdom is for those who value it. The kingdom is for those who value it. One commentator put it this way. Once the kingdom of heaven is truly understood, nothing else can compare with its value. Once we truly understand the gospel, once we truly understand what we have been given through God in Jesus Christ, nothing compares to that value. And so I'll ask you the same question that Jesus said to his disciples, do we understand these things? You understand that if you call yourselves disciples, then the kingdom of God must be your treasure. It must be the pearl of greatest price. It must be realized that it is eternal. It must be believed with every fiber of our being. Because the kingdom of God is for those who value it. So take inventory of your lives. Do you value the kingdom of God and all that it stands for? How much value do you place on the kingdom of God compared to everything else that's going on in your life right now? Right? And another danger of preaching a sermon like this is people running out the door and saying, I'm quitting my job, selling my house, and moving to Africa, becoming a missionary, because that's what this passage told me to do. Okay, maybe, probably not, but maybe, right? The answer's never in the extremes, church. We've got to realize that God has called each and every one of you to where you are right now to glorify him to be that representation of the kingdom to your friends and to your family, to your students, to your neighbors, everything. That's why you're where you are. So that you can translate, you do all the fun work of being sanctified, right? Of all these ways and the millions of decisions we have to make every day. And I say, is this for my kingdom or is this for God's kingdom? That's how we grow. That's how we learn. Do we value the kingdom of God more than hobbies, more than leisure, more than career or status or relationships or kids? What on our calendar needs to get bumped so we can value Jesus more? Do we value and cherish the church as the visible outpost of the kingdom of God? That's what we are here. We're an expression of the kingdom of God right here in Sussex County. Do we invest in the church? Do we invest in relationships? Do we invest in discipleship? Do we invest in church membership? Do we prioritize the physical gathering of the church on Sundays? Or do we just fit it in when we can? Yeah, I'll get to church if there's nothing else going on. 
Do we still sit home and watch the live stream when we should be right here in church? Do we value the spiritual disciplines of the kingdom? Do we value Bible intake, meditation, study, prayer, fasting, fellowship? Do we value all those things? And men, I'm going to challenge you, us specifically, we have a great chance to invest in the kingdom of God by going a couple hours north and going to the men's retreat coming up. And there are still spots. And I hear it all the time. I just don't, I just can't. I just don't know. I, I, I get it. I understand that there might be legitimate reasons, but everything is a value decision. Every decision in our life is a value decision. And sometimes we got to make sacrifices for that. It's not too late to invest in a few days for spiritual growth. And I say again, why? We bring it back to the big why. Why? Why even do this at all? Because it's worth it. Because it's worth it. This is not guilt motivation with no reward from Pastor Mike. This is pointing you to the pearl of greatest price. This is pointing you to the treasure that's hidden in the field. This is pointing you to a kingdom that has a worth that cannot be compared to. That's where we need to invest. That's where we need to think. The kingdom of God is worth far more than the cost of discipleship. And in the end, remember, eternity is at stake, either in eternity with God or apart from God. And God works in the lives of those who believe him. Do you believe God enough to value him, to trust him with those decisions? Because God's kingdom is for those who value it. Father, this is a tough word, a clear word. Lord, your, your examples in the parables are not difficult to understand. We see a man selling all that he has in order to get something that is worth far more. And Lord, on this day, especially when tradition tells us we celebrate it as the spark that started the Protestant Reformation, we remember what we've been given that has been revealed again, that once was, was hidden and revealed the gospel, the pure, unadulterated gospel that we, guilty sinners, can be justified before a perfectly holy God through faith. That in an instant, Lord, you declare us innocent from where we were guilty. And that is through the faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the pearl of greatest price. Help us, Lord, to lay hold of that and lay hold of that deeply within our hearts. And Father, as we gather in care groups and relationships and other things to talk about these things, as we look at our calendars that go by and we have hundreds of little moments to make value decisions about where we will invest our time and our money and our resources, Lord, guide us and convict us May we continue to prioritize the kingdom of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.